the difference of why we call it digital practice versus like design technology department. I think a lot of firms, again, use the term design technology. It was important for us and again, our boss, that what we do is about how we deliver our projects, right? It's about the practice of architecture. It's not the sole focus isn't just around technology. The two have to commingle. And I think it helps also distinguishing our group with IT, seeing the word digital practice in kind of our job title, I will say does make a difference versus it saying design technology or technology department, because there's still a bit of a confusion and gray area with that. And although we still get some of those IT questions and we're like, nope, go that way. That's not us. (laughs) But it does really help. I think it pulls in everything together. Again, the sole purpose is delivering our projects on time and making sure that the client is satisfied and happy with the product. Welcome to Best Practice a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Now, on to our guests. Very, very excited to introduce Veronica Quintero and Alex Wilson. Veronica is the BIM practice manager at KPF, where she raises the firm's level of BIM maturity within the digital practice team. We're going to be talking a little bit about this word digital practice too, because I think that's a really interesting conversation to have. She works with teams in the early stages of a project to strategize and implement a successful BIM workflow. Her focus at KPF is on leading BIM implementation across all the global offices and integrating design technology tools into the team's workflows. We're also joined by Alex Wilson, a senior BIM specialist at KPF and a speaker at Autodesk University 2020. He has over 14 years of experience pairing the architectural design process with computation workflows at firms such as Seldorf, Shop and Robert A.M. Stern, and they work together. So on that note, thank you so much for Joanne and myself. Great. Thanks for having us. We're really, really excited to talk about this topic. So the conversation is going to be about managing a BIM practice. So we're going to talk a little bit about that in a second. But first, I'd love to understand from both of you, what are the highlights of your career that kind of got you to this point to get into So I started my architecture career very traditional. I went to NJIT, did the five-year program, then worked at a small architecture firm for a few years doing very traditional stuff. I actually was the only person. I learned Revit in school back in 2005. I just aged myself. And when I started at the new firm, I was the only one who knew Revit. And so I was deemed the person to kind of show the office how to use Revit and how to implement it into the project. I will admit I got bored of the traditional architecture kind of route that I was going in, shop drawings and things like that. So I went back to school and that's when I really feel like I got in tune with my passion in digital fabrication, technology and implementing technology into our workflow and not just seeing it as a piece of software or a piece of new tools and new technologies, but how can we use this to kind of advance our processes and help us design more efficiently. So at Stevens, I studied digital fabrication. And again, we used CATIA, a lot of unique and cool tools. And from there, I said, well, this is what I want to do. I still want to be an architect, but I want to see how I can kind of use these skills and tools to kind of advance my career, but also stay excited and keep learning more unique kind of workflows and again, bring all these skills and and ideas together into one. So from there, it's been a long journey. I've been working at different firms. I think I finally, I feel like Goldilocks. I think I finally found the sweet spot, the right organization and firm that really supports my goals, my visions, understands the importance of BIM and technology and really supports the growth of our department and helps us with resources and all of that. So obviously we can get into a little bit more of that, but that's where I am in my career. And Alex, you can take it from there. So mine's a little bit different. Like I grew up playing video games and messing around on computers. And then when I figured out that I wanted to do architecture, I got into a university in Australia and took like a digital path. It wasn't particularly a digitally driven school, but we had a couple of lecturers who taught at the AA and worked at Zaha and things like that. And that was kind of the path I took. And from there, I went into design, focusing on grasshopper rendering, that kind of stuff. And then decided I wanted to move to New York to kind of test my own ideas of urbanism. 
And when I arrived in New York, Australia was kind of a bit ahead of the curve in many regards. Like when I was there nine years ago, firms were pretty much fully and BIM was a deliverable on all government jobs. So I kind of arrived in New York a little bit ahead of the curve and just kind of formed good relationships. When I first arrived at Ramza, I was really close with the BIM team and slowly progressed and realized that was something I was super interested in, both on the technology problem solving and also being able to reach out to different projects and solve kind of complicated problems. So from there, I kind of jumped around a bit and, and a little bit like Veronica, I was looking for the right fit. And we met and kind of really, really hit it off well. We have a very close mutual friend who also works in BIM support or in a BIM practice. And yeah, we kind of gelled from there. So the side that I kind of see it from is like the interaction with the teams and like the relationship side. I learned because I sat next to a guy who was cool and I just asked him a bunch of questions. And so I kind of think that's super important from the BIM practice side, and I try and kind of foster good relationships. And that's super important to me, uh, both in, in and out of the profession. Thank you for sharing. Both of you kind of mentioned something about KPFs. I'll kind of paraphrase, but it seems like KPFs culture with regards to BIM was the right place for you. Can you maybe unpack a little bit about what about KPFs approach to BIM made it unique or was it the perspective? Was it the actual responsibilities and the roles of the team as opposed to other companies need to work that? Yeah, I guess we should start by saying the biggest kind of difference is our boss, head of technology, is the CIO. He's a principal in the firm. He has a seat at the table. That is very rare in a lot of big firms that you have someone who's an architect, but also is the head of technology. And because, again, he's the CIO, it makes a really big difference. So again, because he supports us, he manages not just digital practice, but also IT infrastructure, data science. And we'll talk a little bit more of how kind of our departments are structured. He can go to the partners meetings and speak on behalf of our group and really talk their language because he understands the importance of it. And because again, he's also an architect, he, he understands both sides. He, he knows and understands what the needs of the designers are, and then also understands our kind of future forward thinking for pushing technology at KPF. Because KPF is such a big global design firm, design is number one. Like above all, we don't focus too much on, well, technology will save you this much time. If you use BIM, it'll cut your staff hours and have, that's not important as much as we're delivering our design better and more efficient and what the client wants. And the design integrity doesn't get affected because of the tool. And that's what's important. And so that's really what we're always trying to kind of educate the designers and educate the studios. And I might've gone off the question a little bit, but Alex, you can reel me back in, but it, it really does make a difference to have the CIO kind of head of the table. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the, the question was about how, like, why it was a good fit for us. Yeah, I mean, I think like having the CIO like James as the head of the team is really important, but also it's like the dynamics of the teams themselves. Like when I first interviewed and Veronica kind of wowed me with like all our 3D printers and all of like the cool stuff, like all the cool toys and introduced me to the ARVR people and the makerspace and talked about like the cross collaboration between the teams. Like that was super important and super fun, but also, you know, like once we've kind of built, well, Veronica built, I can't really take credit for it, built like the team that we have now. I think part of that is why it's such a good fit. Everyone gets along very well. The jobs are interesting. We have the backing of like the partners and the designs are interesting. I think also I've worked at a few different places. And if you look at the style of the firms I've worked at, it's vastly different. But on kind of a more personal level, like I like KPS buildings. Like I think they're cool. And that definitely helps. Exhibit A or wait. (laughs) On that note, I think we talked a little bit about digital practice. And Veronica, I would love to understand from your perspective, that seems like a conscious decision to call it digital practice as opposed to... BIM, right? It's moving away from, let's say, the technical aspect of what many of the team members might do. And it's Mm -hmm. talking more about something maybe more strategic to the firm as a whole. Can you speak a bit about like what that term means to you and maybe give us some insight into how that was adopted? Sure. Actually, a year before I joined, I joined KPF in 2019. So I'm fairly new, although it feels like a decade. A year before I joined our CIO made the conscious decision to form the digital practice department. 
prior to that, it was very similar to, I guess, other firms where you kind of have these silo digital practice groups. You have BIM, you have computation, you have fabrication, making space. And then if you're lucky, you also have a visualization AR, VR department. We had all of that, but there was no real kind of umbrella structuring it all together. And because he was, he's overseeing all of technology, IT, data science, it made sense to kind of make this group. So part of him formalizing that group was hiring me because there was, again, no formal BIM team. There was a few specialists here and there, but there was really no real vision for that department. And really, that's the reason why I said, I'll take the job. I mean, it it was a no-brainer. The first thing he told me was, when you join, you have full reign in structuring the team however you want. And I was like, whoa, like this is the first time anyone's told me that. I'll take it. And the irony is that Alex is here. My first hire, and this was the first time I was a manager, not just of a department, but of people. And so my first hire was actually Alex, who's on the call. and, And it really made, I think, hiring Alex made the biggest difference in how we structured the rest of the team. Right now, we're a team of four or five in New York, if I count myself. We are a global practice, so we have an office in London. Same thing, we have a BIM department there, and we have offices in Asia. But New York is, quote-unquote, our headquarters. So digital practice is super important because, again, we have, just to kind of step back for a minute, we have BIM, we have computation, we have makerspace and we have AR, VR visualization. And I would say BIM is the biggest department. Most of the other departments are a team of one or two. And to be honest, that's been sufficient for how we work with studios and different projects. And Alex can get into it a little bit more, but we do have a little bit of a mix of a structure. I know some companies have either all specialists siloed in a bubble in a room and you only interact with them when something breaks. And the other kind of model is you don't have a silo group, but you kind of have them sprinkled throughout the studios. KPF doesn't have studios per se. We just kind of have projects and design directors and design principals, and you sit close to the project you're working on. And so we have a mix of both. We have BIM leads and power users that are sprinkled throughout. And then you have our department. I think Alex... You can explain a little bit more of how that works since you work so close with the teams. And sorry, one more thing. The difference with our team as well is we are actually also embedded in projects. So Alex and the rest of the BIM specialists are assigned to specific projects. So it's not just if a ticket comes in, whoever is available answers a random questions. No, you're part of the team. You're helping them strategize. You're helping them with making sure that they're working efficiently. But Alex, again, I think you can do a better justice to that question. Yeah. I mean, I guess like part of the thing about why digital practice is more important than than calling it BIM is also because of like the cross-pollination of ideas. Like when when we meet with a team and there's a certain idea that may be done better in a different software or you may be looking at some kind of interoperability workflow thing between especially now with Rhino inside, between Rhino and Revit or Really, oh, Rhino and Archicad, Rhino inside was in inside Archicad first. Yeah, I mean, like, that's why it's great to, like, be part of that team because then you can just, you have a good relationship with all those people. You're not sitting in a different area of the office. We all sit together. We all hang out together. We have weekly meetings and catch-ups. And I think that kind of collaboration definitely helps the teams because everyone knows what everyone else is working on when you meet with the team. They know that you can get, you can pull those other people into those meetings when they're needed. And then also having those contacts on the team. So even before a team starts, we have a digital practice kickoff meeting. So it'll be with the designers, the project managers, the kind of people running the team. You look at staffing, things like that. And even from then, it's kind of the opposite of that. Well, help help tickets come in and we do have a help ticket system. It's really the opposite of that. It's about like looking forward, trying to find the solutions before the problem even occurs, or just looking for interesting ideas and ways that we can test new software or implement some new workflow or the tower in my background was when Rhino Inside was a pre-beta or a beta and Rhino came in to present and then the next day the head of computation and me were like we should make this tower that just started in this new software and that was kind of cool you know like having that close relationship with the different teams 
And then also the team's kind of trusting us. And it came up like a year later when I was talking to the head of computation. He was like, yeah, it was crazy that we made that tower and running inside. Like it was a pre-beta. It could have totally failed. And it never even occurred to me, but in hindsight, I guess. I, probably should have thought that. I think it's important to note, George, one last point. The difference of why we call it digital practice versus like design technology department. I think a lot of firms, again, use the term design technology. It was important for us and again, our boss, that what we do is about how we deliver our projects, right? It's about the practice of architecture. It's not the sole focus isn't just around technology. The two have to commingle. And I think it helps also distinguishing our group with IT, seeing the word digital practice in kind of our job title, I will say does make a difference versus it saying design technology or technology department because there's still a bit of a confusion and gray area with that. And although we still get some of those IT questions and we're like, nope, go that way. That's not us. <laughs> but it does really help. I think it pulls in everything together. Again, the sole purpose is delivering our projects on time and making sure that the client is satisfied and happy with the product. I'm curious to know a bit more about how your teams interface with other, aside from project teams, is there any overlap or interface with teams in different functions like finance or even marketing? Yeah, definitely. And actually, I have a recurring meeting with the peer review committee. That's what we call it at at KPF. It's kind of like the technical directors and technical coordinators. And why that's important is they're the ones that are checking your drawings before it goes out the door. So they are the powerhouse of standards. So Alex and I have been going through the effort in the last year of totally revamping all of our KPF Revit templates all of our standards, we're like, why not? Now's the time to change everything. But we're not doing that again in silo because we don't want teams to feel like, oh, well, the BIM team is changing everything. No, we are working with the peer review committee who, again, they're the ones that are marking up your drawings. So we essentially ask them, what are the things that you're always marking up on drawings? Okay, let's make this into the template so that you never have to mark it up again because it's just there. It shows up correctly. There's consistency across our projects, especially our New York projects. And that really does make a difference. And they see us as part of the team. They don't see me as an outsider coming into their meeting. Oh, she wants to talk Revit. They're actually excited to talk Revit. And they're curious about how we can start automating a lot more of the mundane things with life safety drawings, code checking, all of the tedious things. So that again, the designers spend more time designing and less time wrestling with the piece of software. So the peer review committee is one of the top committees that we kind of work with. We do have someone with the role of knowledge coordinator in our in our office, and she's not an architect. She's not architecturally trained, but she manages and coordinates all things learning, all things content. At KPF, she works with and updating our intranet. She works with us like learning events webinars and things like that. So we work really close with her. And again, she keeps us connected with what's going on in the firm, what's coming up, how she can help us get plugged into bigger events and activities within the office so that, again, we're not in a siloed department. And I think, Alex, it'd be great if you can talk a little bit about UI, EP, and data science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the data science was one that I was kind of thinking about when you um, asked that question, because like connecting with the teams is also important, but there's also like this kind of underlying like flow of data, I guess, that we're trying to kind of achieve at the moment. And it's really like tying useful information from different areas to kind of have a single source of truth in a way. So we're lucky enough to have a data scientist at KPF who I think like she's brilliant as far as I'm concerned. And so what we're kind of looking to do is we're building useful ways to access information in a single place. So one of them is the dashboard. It's just, you know, like accessing information from the Revit database, pulling it out, comparing it to key performance indicators, things like that, making it accessible to the teams. Like you have no idea how many models have thousands of warnings and no one could even tell you where the warning button is. But you kind of pull that out and show that to people, put it on the intranet page. So it's linked to pictures, places they go, you know, all that, like it's just kind of brought up to the front and center. That's really useful. And then from there, kind of pulling in different information. So, for example, pulling in information about staffing from our staffing software, pulling in different 
things about the timetable from our, you know, billing, like from the billing code it's using is indicative of the phase of design it's in. So if you can kind of pull things from there in the background, it's not necessarily, this particular task isn't necessarily about coordinating with different teams, but it is about setting up those kind of things on the background that you can pull it all together and then just have like a nice place to visualize your data without going into a random part of Revit or, or a different software or people who don't even use Vision for that, but still having up-to-date information, having it update one place and then having it push through everywhere and having it accessible for the designs on the teams to just kind of look and see what phase there is, what deadlines are coming up, how many warnings they have, why are there 5,000 CAD links in this three-story building, stuff like that. And um, importantly to that, the manual input is removed. I think cool. that really is a huge time saver. We all use Revit homepages, the landing page when you open Revit, but most of the time you're manually inputting stuff, which means no one's filling it out. But with our kind of process that we have kind of connecting to all of our databases, it's just updating every day. So when you open your homepage, you get the latest, you know, who's your BIM lead, it's pulling from vision, you know, how many warnings you have, there's a script running in the background every day. And to add to that, we are also working with the staffing committee, which is super Mm -hmm. critical and important to help them identify key people to place on projects. It's less about Let's just pick whoever's available and more about, okay, who's actually going to help this project move forward? And we have this amazing dashboard, like Alex was talking about, that lists all the projects that are active at KPF, which ones are in Revit, which ones should be in Revit so that we can have a conversation with them, and then key dates, project managers, and then it all connects. You can then click on that project and it gives you the model health dashboard that Alex was describing And it's great. I mean, it's one of those things that when you bring it all together, you're like, holy crap, this is really insightful, not just for the BIM team, but when we showed it to the staffing committee and some of the key leaders, they were like, whoa, what? At first, they're like, what do we do with all this information? And so to that point, we have kind of stripped down versions in Tableau that just shows them what they need to know and then what we need to know. And then we have a version for the BIM leads who are just architects embedded on the projects and what they need to know. We have the big brother version of the dashboard where we just see everything. You deleted something, we know it. Something's happening in your model, we get a notification. So it's great. I mean, that example of how your teams have built out this cross-functional tool that goes beyond just, I think it really encapsulates that nature of, of digital practice, right? That it's really looking at, at the entire firm, not just within a specific, let's say, design, right? There's a kind of offshoots now where you're seeing, you know, I think Shane Berger at, at Woods Bagot has like the design ops team now. There seems to be a growing desire to break out the team that is the most data-centric within the organization, in a real way, right? Like, I mean, it's like the most complex data, right? Because it's also like not just charts, it's like geometry and expanding that out to be more cross-functional. In Monograph, we believe that the BIM team will ultimately become the operations team over time. And that is like, especially large organizations, it's those people that can really reimagine practice from the technologies that are available, right? To deliver a better client experience are going to be the ones that are going to be game-changing. On that note, I'm curious, where do you, as a team, who do you benchmark yourself against? I mean, there is a probably, everyone kind of knows what almost all other firms are doing at a certain level, but I'm curious, is like, do you benchmark yourself against them? Do you share these same feelings as to how KPF is operating? Or or maybe another way to frame it is like, are there kind of like ideological lines in the sand right now still about what this team should be doing? It's a great question. I will say, I think it was, no, the year before, uh, pre-pandemic at AU 2019, there was a firm, I don't want to name drop, it was a big firm, big design firm, who actually did a presentation around their BIM growth strategy. And me and my colleague, we went because we were curious. And it was very interesting. It It was kind of very similar to the path we were going at the time two years ago. We're like, wow, they're doing everything we're aspiring to do. Fast forward today, two years, I think we've kind of caught up to what that firm is doing. I don't have insight to that firm if they're actually, it's difficult because what you see sometimes in presentation is the company putting their best foot forward, showing all the glamorous stuff, but not really showing 
a struggle or what we're kind of faking just to what we're trying to do, but we're not there yet. So it's really difficult. But what they presented was really aspirational. And, and we're hoping that we're either at that level because they do very similar work that we do. And, and I will say this as well. We have a very close working relationship with Autodesk, for better or worse. And although they don't, they also can't share because of NDA specific company information, they do help us understand where we are across the board globally in terms of usage in software, adaptation of different tools. And so we do get a little bit of insight on that. Again, no names. They just compare. They say, these are 10 companies that are similar to the type of work that KPF does. And I think to that, that really is helpful. And I think Alex can talk a little bit more. We do have obviously peers and colleagues that we know from some some of the other big firms, especially the firms that we've come from, SOM, Gensler, Ramza, Shop. And so Alex, I think, can talk a little bit more to that. He's been involved even with some of their events and getting some insider traits. I think we're at a point where I feel like a few years ago, there was a lot of hesitation with sharing the secret sauce. Everyone was really nervous about even... I think we couldn't even be at a, a fireside conversation like this a few years ago. It's like, you can't say too much. Someone else will steal your idea. But we're at a point where, one, everyone's pretty much doing the same thing. We're just kind of catering it to our own companies. And two, we all know how to do the secret sauce. It's just, obviously, you have to have the right team, but also you have to have the support from your leadership. But every company is capable of doing what we're doing and what the other company is doing. There is no secret sauce. It's just bringing all the ingredients together at the right time, at the right moment. Everyone's asking the same questions in the same forums, by the way. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There's not much. You can sort of uh, read the tea leaves through the the kind of messages people are, are, are putting out there. So, yeah, Alex, I'm curious about your perspective, having worked at a lot of also various places, too. A very, I also would note, right? I mean, these are very different. Collectively, you've all worked at very different static places, right? Which Mm -hmm. can also impact their view on what they're doing, too, from a technology perspective. But yeah, I mean, I think like Veronica summed it up really well. A lot of the firms do very similar things. And it comes down to the people and then also like the sign off from management, like ultimately, like this, this kind of keeps coming back, this idea, but it's like so I think so paramount to the success of the team. Kind of like Veronica said, there are kind of some people out there trailblazing in certain directions. Whether or not that's where the industry will end up, will kind of time will only tell. But fundamentally, it's about there's no secret sauce. Good support is good support, Ben. While, you know, titles haven't really been set in stone or like carved into stone so that you understand with this title, this is really your skill set. They're definitely kind of the industry's like filtering out and the special and good kind of specialists are rising up to bring the industry up as a whole. Now, the question is, and I think partially to draw on what you were talking about as design ops and technology taking over operations, I think part of that also flips over to the the software side and the limitations around the software, how the industry can really start to bring that forward to real, like if it is going to be go down that path, there are certain limitations that are almost beyond the specialist in a way. Now, whether the software can kind of start to help out in that regard or, or something new will come along, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But in terms of like the position of KPFs, digital practice team, I think one great thing is our, the CIO is always interested in new ideas He's always about getting us out there to meet people, good relationships with NVIDIA, with Autodesk, with McNeil. I have a particularly good relationship with a a small development company called Orchestra, and he's really excited about that. It's a new software that's come out that he thinks, you know, and I also think is, is really exciting. And he really wants us to foster those relationships. So I think in a way, the industry is starting to normalize what we do and kind of create standards for best practices. We're also lucky enough that we have that support to go out and branch out and, and beta test a small company's software or collaborate with Autodesk on their alpha builds for the next software and test random inside when it's free beta and things like that. So I think that's kind of a really a great thing about our team is our ability. And, and that partially comes down to the name and the size of the firm that uh, we get pitched a lot of ideas because we have a big global name and, and a lot of uh, prominent buildings. But the fact that we get the time and the resources 
to allow us to just test these things out and play them and then implement them on jobs and things like that. That's a real positive because uh, in a lot of firms, it's kind of it's sometimes going to be a little bit more about the bottom line and how much time you're saving and how you can create a metric to prove your own worth. Whereas for our team, at least, we're lucky enough that we definitely get more space to just kind of play sometimes or explore our own interests. And I think that's the thing that's going to help industry move forward is get, you know giving the small person a chance and, and testing out their software. And that's how it blows up. I think to add to that, George, we honestly are our own worst enemies. There are times that within our own group, we're like, you know what? We're not pushing the envelope enough. We need to build more tools. We need to push Rhino inside more. We need to put ourselves out there and do crazy stuff. And then when we talk with our peers or even ask McNeil, like, what are the other companies? How are they using Rhino inside? They pretty much validate, like, you guys are doing top-level stuff sorry you know you guys are actually feel free, feel free. top level <laughs> shit own it top level shit and a lot of times we because again we're in the kpf bubble and we don't as much as we try to present at other conferences we don't do it that often that we know again what other people are doing so we're always like man we are not doing the great you see again the the revit projects behind this a lot of our projects are really complex and really big. And so when we feel like we're just using Revit out of the box and doing simple things, we're like, man, we got to kill it. We got to do more and more and more. And then we realize we're actually doing a lot compared to some of the other firms that are at our level or even that are a little bit larger than us. So it's a mixed bag. So the benchmarking is a little bit difficult sometimes because it does ground us. It's like, all right, we're, we're doing our stuff. We're in the right track. And we don't have that competitive nature. We're like, oh, company XYZ, they just built a fancy tool to do whatever. We have to build one better. That's not our MO and that's not how we kind of compare ourselves. I think when we do speak to some of our peers and colleagues, it's more of, oh, you're doing something cool. Can we tag along? Can we collaborate? And we do have that relationship with like even the engineering firms like TT and some of the big firms where... It's like, let's try to hackathon this problem together. It doesn't matter about who's getting credit or who wants to shine. Let's just, it's a problem in the industry. It's a problem within our firm. Let's just figure it out together and move forward and help maybe someone else who's struggling. And even when we're testing out some big tools, there are firms that reach out to us and, oh, we heard from the salesman that you're using this tool. And I always tell the salesman, I need a commission because every time you drop my name, that means they're they're <laughs> buying your product. Um, but a lot of times they'll reach out to us and say, oh, this salesman said you're using this tool. Can you tell me what you think about it or how is it working for you at KPF? And again, we always think we're using the bare minimum. And they're like, oh, we're just using it to print it, <laughs> to do all these crazy things. And we're like, okay, maybe we're not doing so bad. Like, let's cut ourselves a little bit. So yeah, it's tough. Yeah. It's tough. Well, I think the secret sauce kind of is a lot of especially smaller firms or most firms that I've experienced with still think BIM is just Revit or it's just this tool and there's just like a misunderstanding of what BIM can really do for you but what digital practice or most bigger firms are doing now is bringing the BIM up level where it's like using data and technology to like run your entire firm from everything, right? You talk about the staffing. And one of the things that I really like, I used to work with Veronica. <laughs> so one of the things that we did was kind of using data to help train staff kind of up leveling their skills in technology, but also in other skills like architecture tasks that you need to do day to day. And using that, so I think using data to bring in at basically on every level of your operations in a firm is kind of where BIM is going to be heading towards. It's not just a software. It's not just Revit that everyone thinks it is. But I would be curious to just have you talk about a little more about training your staff and how that works out because I think that's a very interesting thing that we together yeah training is a fun topic and i say fun with heavy sarcasm and pain because <laughs> i tell you every firm that i've been to and i'm sure all of you as well we've tried everything we've tried 
off-site training. We've tried training in-house. We've tried video recordings. We've tried everything. And I think we're, I don't know, I can't say that we've nailed it in the head, but I will say at KPF, we're trying to do a little bit of what we think works, especially for young designers that are coming out of school and have that learning mentality and eagerness to learn. We're working again close with our knowledge coordinator. Prior to the pandemic, we hired a Revit instructor to do in-house training because we did a lot of surveys and talked to a few people and said, how do you prefer training? Do you like to be in a group with people, hands-on training? Do you like to just watch on your own time, no accountability? Or do you like to be sent somewhere for three days and then come back and jump on a Revit project? They hated that one, I will say. And that's the one that people that companies always are like, oh, we'll send someone. They won't get distracted. Everyone hates that. Don't do that to your staff. They hate it. They come back and it's like diarrhea of the head. Like everything just comes out, brain fart, nothing sticks. Where are you sending them though? Like I, I, <laughs> the typical island resort training facilities. Imagine. But yeah, they you're teaching them probably like a small residential house that has nothing to do with KPF projects. So that's big. Yeah, we killed that the minute we came to KPF. And so now because of the pandemic and to that point, everyone, not everyone, but most of people said we like to be held accountable. We want to kind of be babysat and told you have to sit in this room and do training for three hours or however long. So they like the hands-on approach. They like that there was someone there for them to ask questions. The downfall with a video, and we have online subscription to a, a learning content. We use Pinnacle, and it's the same thing. And you watch a video, you take a quiz, you're done. But there's not someone there on the other side of the screen helping you with questions that you may have or if you're stuck on someone. So that's the downfall to that. But again, there's a flexibility of you watch it when you have time on the go. So everyone was like, hands-on training. We need a person, a physical person there teaching us. With the pandemic, we're now using another company who's actually doing a virtual live classroom style, which is kind of cool. They have virtual machines where everyone logs in. The instructor can actually see your mouse clicks. So they can tell if you're actually sitting there not doing the training and you're messing around with something else, playing with your cat or whatever. And they'll call out your name. And so that's a good mix. We just started doing it. We think that that's going to be the bridge that we needed to kind of bridge the the skills gap of people just struggling. But ultimately, the biggest trouble is time. It's not even about how they're learning. It's being given the time to actually learn the content, learn the subject. And again, we're working with the staffing committee. Just-in-time training has been working for the most part, but again, it's just in time training. So you still have to take that person off the project for a day or two, unless you know two weeks in advance that they're going to be reassigned to a Revit or they have to learn Grasshopper because there's complexity. So we're working now with our HR department, Pause for Impact, to almost integrate this into your yearly performance review. And so that it's expected, like, okay, you were given... I don't know, 20 hours this year to do learning. It's like your AIA accreditation. You have to fulfill certain credits to be, to maintain your license. So we're looking to work with them so that at the end of the year, they check your stats and they see, oh, you haven't done much training this year. What happened? This is supposed to help you become a director, become a, a, a senior associate principal. And I think that incentive for people will help because there are people there that just like they think they know it all they don't need training or the designers with the theoretical thinking oh I don't need Revit that's for documentation no you need it because you want to be an architect and that's part of your role so we've been working through that I think Alex you can talk a little bit about how our team were and I say this a lot I tell every team, we are not a training facility. Do not look at the BIM team as a training facility. That is not our our role, 100%. Obviously, we're there to ask answer complex questions, but there's a little bit of a different culture that we're trying to bring as to how teams should approach Alex when it comes to questions or advanced workflow ideas. So I think, Alex, you work so close with teams in that respect. It would be great to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I guess the other side of the coin is the like 
how you up-level people who have skills. So bringing people into the software and teaching them basics is one thing, but then there's the how you keep people around, how you keep them interested, how you keep um, you know keep them learning to keep them progressing. Because the other thing is the person who's been good at Revit for a while but doesn't feel like they're kind of taking the next step. And so we have a couple of user groups that are specifically for Revit. We have the BIM Leaders group. We have our Visual Programming group. And we also put on a lot of learning events. We get a lot of people to come in and talk just about new things that are happening, new plugins, new softwares. We also, really successful initiative we have is teams just presenting their own work. So whether it's about visualization in Revit, getting just teams to show what they've done, or workflows or models or particular problems that they've overcome, those are very successful, probably the best attended. And so there's that side, which is kind of more the learning side and and trying to get people to engage. And then the other side of of the upskilling is we harvest the journals, which is a journal for people who don't know is basically everything you ever do in Revit, including every printer on your computer, your location, all that stuff. It it gets logged. And so we have a, a journal harvesting kind of initiative where we can kind of look at a very macro level. So you could take one person's journal, see what they're doing, see problems they're, that they're encountering, how many keyboard shortcuts they're using, what particular tasks. And then you can also kind of extrapolate that out to the entire office to see at a kind of very global scale, what are things that are coming up? Like, do we need to have specific trainings for adaptive panels? Because everyone's using adaptive panels or is nobody using keyboard shortcuts or is nobody auditing their model? Does no one check the warnings? All that kind of stuff gets saved in the journal. And so you get this insanely big data set at KPF because the firm is so large. I mean, I think it's like 10 gigs a week, which I guess isn't that insane, but it's, it grows very quickly. So that's kind of great because you can start to see like trending. And then also that kind of feeds back into the dashboard that we were talking about earlier. That data from those journals, from those users, also then feeds back in. So it knows who's on the project and what they're doing and how the model health is going when it was audited last, things like that. So it's kind of like a nice little loop where you can look at one person, you can look at a model, you can look at the entire firm, and then you can just take all that and then make it in an easy to read dashboard with some kind of overall colors, the general things to just start to, to break it down to usable knowledge instead of, I don't know if you've ever read a journal, but it's, it's not easy to read. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, this is mind-blowing to me at the level of which you're operating from the training side because one of it's like, as you mentioned, right, the using journals for data collection to be able to be more honed in on maybe at an individual level, like who's their ramp-up time, let's, let's just say, right, for, for new, new modules or new skills versus this other aspect of it, which is more sociological, which is how do people want to learn in mm. general, right? So it's like the sort of the solution after you've identified the problem. And I'm wondering a couple of things in real time. One is just how does this feedback back to hiring, right? Because like a lot of what happens at an organization is always upstream is it's all comes down to who you hire and the kind of attitudes that they might have personally, whether they have a growth mindset or a more fixed mindset in general, which can already map over to how they might perform in different areas, right? Within, within the company. I'm thinking about that at the same time. I'm thinking like, are there opportunities for people who just might be very skilled in one area that doesn't that's not captured necessarily by the hard skills of like actually using the software? So for instance, mm-hmm. like how do you identify those people that are really good at rallying other people around them to do something, which they might be not the best Revit user or inherently not passionate about it. But that doesn't mean that that, that they are left out of the conversation within an organization, right? That might be a different path. I'm curious, like, how does that, those two aspects, one, all types of hiring in some cases are like career growth. It's like mm-hmm. upstream when you're hiring somebody, downstream when like it's like figuring out their own path that makes the most sense for their skill sets. That's a great question. And actually to that point, which I think will answer that, we forgot to mention, we recently, I would say in the last year or two, have launched a fellowship program within KPF for our employees. And so through this program, you're able to apply and it's for all the different departments. So we, again, have digital practice, which has the four umbrellas. We have KPF EP, which is environmental performance. So all the sustainability on stuff. And with that group specifically, it's less about the software, more about just the workflow and understanding 
how to understand the data that's coming out, how to do the performance analysis and, and things like that. And then we have KPF UI, which is the user interface, and they do a lot of the tool, uh, sorry, urban interface, a lot of the tools. And if you go to our website, they have the Scout tool there that does a lot of the urban analysis. And through this fellowship program, and it ranges from time you can do the fellowship for three months, six months, a year. It all depends on staffing again. But what's great about it is you are now kind of within the department learning how how we use our tools, how we interact with project teams. So we're upskilling, we're helping you upskill your software skills, but also your people skills. You're working with some of these teams and understanding how we respond to clients, even when we just had a fellowship join BIM last couple of months. And again, he's learning the ins and outs of how we run our BIM practice, not just learning the tools. So how we interact with teams, the fun, boring stuff about BIM contracts and BIM execution plans and things like that, how to kind of lay out the whole life cycle of the project. And so with this opportunity, I think that definitely will help with retention because again, you're giving people the opportunity to take a few months to pause on project work and focus on things that they're interested in. And then on the return, you're now bringing a newly heightened specialist back into the studio. So with the environmental performance fellows, they're again, getting all this knowledge, they're presenting to the office, they're working on projects. And now they're seen as a key leader on, so now when there are projects that need a high level sustainability analysis or lead um, you know, results, they will be strategically placed on those projects versus sitting there with untapped resources. And that happens a lot in firms. You know, There's people that you don't realize they have all these hidden skills because they're either an introvert or they're not part of these committees. And so you don't know that they're able to do all of these amazing things. I don't know if Alex, you want to add to yeah, that? I- I guess to the second question, I, I don't uh, deal with uh, start hiring. So Veronica hired me, so I guess it worked out well in that regard. But I guess in terms of like people who have skills that aren't necessarily quantifiable by data, I think that's the world, you know, like you need to have those human relationships. If you don't have good human relationships, all the data in the world isn't going to help you at all. So the people who can get rallied behind, who are leaders, they're really identified by having a good relationship with your team uh, and seeing key opportunities to allow them in the same way, you know, as the BIM leaders allow BIM, you know, people who are interested in that. I think it's really about, it's about that. It's about how you interact with your team and how you can get them excited and then understanding the different personalities. Because at the end of the day, your worth to KPF and your salary isn't judged on how many keyboard shortcuts you know. So a lot of that is just personal interactions. And I think that that's fostered pretty well. Like all of the partners that I've met and principals are very approachable. They're very friendly. They know their teams. And that human relationship is far more important in a way than software efficiency, I guess. And having that advocate, I think that's for any position or department that you're in. If you don't have an advocate in your firm outside of your your bubble, you're not going to get that far and you're not going to be heard and you're not going to get that promotion or get a voice at the round table. So it's really important. I, I always encourage my team, make sure you sign up for a mentor that's not in technology. And we have a mentorship program at KPF. And what's great is that we're allowed, I mean, we're seen as support, but obviously we don't feel that way, but we're allowed to also sign up for a mentorship. So it's great to get the technology BIM department mentor um, teamed up with a design director or a technical principal who knows nothing of the software. But again, you're getting, you're learning from them. You're getting insight, knowledge on how the practice is run, how we do things at KPF. And now you take that knowledge and bring it into how we do our work because it's not just let's learn a new, the new cool thing in Revit. It's, it's again, how do we deliver our project? How do we help the architects get the information in and do it in a more efficient way? So I think that really the advocacy mentality is super important to have. You need that cheerleader in the firm to succeed. Well, I mean, this has been a really amazing conversation. I think we cut across so many different aspects of what digital practice is through your own experiences and how you've been leading KPF at this point. I definitely don't think it's a support role. I think the 
sort of there's like one last thing I kind of wanted to mention about the impact. Oh, I'm going just to, back to this question of um, the community in itself, the broader community of people that are in your roles across different firms. In technology in general, you're always kind of showing your cards because the idea is that you're, it's all table stakes. It's all available to everybody. So it's like, how can you compete against yourself in some way? How can you be better within your own the competitive edge in some way of being able to share everything means you have to be, you have to have a next thing to go to, right? You have to have a next edge. And I think that lifts the entire community as a whole when it comes to like how technology is impacting operations. So I really appreciate everything you've mentioned. I'll leave with one last question we'd like to ask. We have about three minutes left, but for each of you real quick, this is a question we always like to ask at the end of every webinar. And it's what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? It's completely, it can be professional. It can be personal. We get all sorts of answers. So maybe, uh, Veronica, if you can kick us off. Sure, and I'll I'll pull in Alex to this. So my birthday was two (laughs) weeks ago. And traditionally, when we were in the office, we always bought donuts for everyone's birthday. But it was always a surprise. We would fake, there was a meeting in the conference room, and we're like, oh, James wants to talk to our boss. And you're like, oh, shit. And it's like, surprise, donuts. So we've had to convert, obviously, to Zoom meetings. But for my birthday this year... Alex, <laughs> Alex hired Zoom Goat. What was it called? It's called Goat Goat Two Meeting. Goat Two Meeting. So it's this goat sanctuary, and they're actually on the call with you as like a person. And so when everyone's like "Happy Birthday," there's a goat on the call, and then they're telling us life story. So that was really nice. It was really unexpected. <laughs> I guess the nicest thing anyone's ever done for me, my sister, when I moved to America, I was like just out of college and didn't understand what a savings account is. And uh, she paid for my ticket. So that's kind of a bit more sentimental, but she like thought that this was a a big opportunity for me uh, and a growth, like for personal growth and professional growth. And so she, uh, she paid for my ticket. So that's, that's something I've been thinking about. You're muted, George, but we feel your sentiment. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, it, there's a lot there. So I just uh, leave everyone with one last message. Uh, so I really appreciate uh, you sharing that. But um, yeah, so just a quick blurb about Monograph. What are we? We are a practice operations software that helps design professionals find out about where they're at on any given project at, across the company. So they can know where they are in terms of real-time budgets. They can know where they are in terms of their schedule, be able to share that schedule with clients and improve the client experience in general. And we're built by architects. A lot of half the company comes from the industry in some regard. Yeah, we're here to build up the next solution for the industry when it comes to operations. So thank you both for joining me. Thank you, Joanne, for joining me as well on this this, uh, talk today. Really appreciate everyone that joined as well to end San Francisco Design Week for hosting. Take care. See you next Thursday. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.